This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. About uh, 10 years ago, my wife and I traveled to Romania. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife was born in Romania. She immigrated here to Chicago when she was three. And so we went back to visit like a bunch of distant relatives that uh, she had not seen for 20 years you know, or more. And if you've ever traveled cross-culturally, you know that there are certain things that we take for granted, especially around like what's polite or what good manners are, that other cultures don't necessarily share, like assumptions we have that they don't share. And, uh, and that comes up especially around food. So in my upbringing, and I don't know if this was from my parents or if this is just from like kind of the Dutch Southwest Michigan area that I grew up in, but one of the, one of the principles was that you don't go to somebody else's house hungry. I don't know if any of you had this. You don't go to somebody else's house hungry because it's impolite to ask somebody to feed you, to ask them to give you food. It's in, it would be impolite to mention that you're hungry because then if you mention that you're hungry, well, now they're obliged to give you something to eat, but they might not have food in their house or they might not want to give you that food. And then they feel badly and then that's your fault, okay? So you can save them this by just eating before you come, being satisfied before you come. Well, as I found out, Eastern Europe thinks about this very differently. I have never been inside a Romanian person's house where food was not immediately put before me. I mean, it's like mystifying to me, like how do you always have these little triangles of cheese just ready in case somebody comes over? How do you always have a dessert to put in front of them? Like you didn't even know I was coming and there's a plate of food in front of me. And, uh, and if, if you're a woman, you're, you're kind of off the hook on whether you have to eat the food, like it's, it's okay if you don't want to. But if you are a man, it is expected you will eat, okay? You will eat, you will show gratitude and you will eat and you will have seconds and the more that you eat, the more the host will feel like, you know, you're great, grateful for their hospitality. So this was my experience. We spent two days going from house to house visiting like, great aunts and uncles and second cousins and third cousins and people that I wouldn't consider to be my cousins, but in Romanian culture, we're all family. So we're visiting all of these people. And at every house, it's like the same deal, like sandwiches, desserts, soda, and then there's like, and how about watermelon? I mean, every single house. So at the end of like two days of this, we go back to her Uncle Yon's house, Uncle John, Uncle Yon. And uh, Uncle Yon has this big smile on his face. He's like, you guys must be really tired. We're like, yeah, we're really tired. And he's like, I got just the thing. Aunt Ioana has spent all afternoon making dinner. <laughs> Huge bowl of soup, pork roast, potatoes, bread, dessert. And I'm like, I cannot eat anymore. I am not hungry at all. But of course I have to show that I'm a man and uh, <laughs> that I'm grateful. And so I'm, I'm forcing this food down. Fortunately, after dinner, they suggest that we go for a walk it's the first time I've burned calories all day. Um, I mean, I was burning calories trying to digest everything that I've been eating, but... And then, naturally, the first thing we see on this walk is a concession stand. Will, get something for yourself to eat. Please, please. No, I insist. I'm like, I don't want anything. Finally, we're, we get them to, you know, bring us home. We're in the car, and, uh, and we're like, yeah, we're so tired. And they're like, oh, you must be tired. We'll get you home to bed right after we get you something to eat. 
So again, these you know, big slabs of bread with salami on them. Emma's like, oh, I don't want salami. They're like, that's okay, give it to Will. I'm like, no, I don't want salami. You know, how about a glass of like fresh milk from the village, you know? And uh, I'm like, Emma, like tell them like lactose intolerant or something. You know? She says, you know, I only drink milk with coffee. They're like, perfect, we'll put the coffee on. Terrible. I mean, finally we, get to, finally we go home. It's like 10 p.m. I've been eating for 12 hours straight. And uh, I don't want to be disrespectful, so in my broken Romanian, I'm like, you know, me will, thank you very much for house, for food, thank you, thank you. And Aunt Joanna turns around to Emma and says, thank you for what? You didn't eat anything. <laughs> well, in the parable that we read this morning, Two men come into God's house. Two men come into God's house. One of these men ate before he came. He comes in full and satisfied, not needing a thing. And the other man comes in starving, empty, literally begging for mercy. And the one that God calls righteous is not the one you'd expect. Jesus seems to say that when you come into God's house, as we have come into his house this morning, when you come into his house, don't eat before you come. Come hungry. Come weak and needy, and you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. So last week, Father Matt preached from the previous parable in Luke, and this is page 877 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And in that parable, Jesus teaches us that we should pray, that we should come to him continually with our prayers. And in this parable, he's teaching us how we should pray. What is the posture of our prayer? And he says the posture of our prayer should be weakness, need, vulnerability, humility. Notice there in your Bibles that like last week, this passage focuses on two characters the Pharisee on the one hand and the tax collector on the other. And at the first reading in this parable, you think, oh, this is a parable about not judging. You know, you hear the Pharisee say, like, thank God I'm not like this guy. You think, oh, yeah, this, this parable, I mean, like, what does he really know about what the tax collector is going through? Who is he to judge his life? And it does sound pretty judgy for him to, to pray that way. This passage is about that. It is about how we treat others, but it's not primarily about that. It's primarily about how we relate to God. Look at verse 9. Jesus tells us exactly who this parable is for. He says, he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. But the focus of this is on trusting in yourself for righteousness. And so we, we have, you know, connotations for Pharisees and tax collectors. We're kind of, we know the biblical story. We know, like, Pharisees, not good. Tax collectors, Jesus hangs out with them. So naturally, we identify with the tax collectors. But this almost assuredly would not have been so for Jesus' listeners. To be a tax collector was shameful. Jesus' listeners would not have gone and identified themselves with him, they would have had a whole host of associations, even feelings, even resentments for that guy, which makes this parable so powerful when he pits this religious leader and this really awful sinner next to one another. 
And so to grasp the audacity of what Jesus is saying about grace, we have to be reminded who these characters represent. So we'll start with the Pharisee. Pharisees in their time, they had a mixed reputation. They were liked by some, they were not liked by others, but they were respected. They were respected. They were respected. There's probably not another group in the Gospels that, is, that was closer to doing what Jesus came to do than the Pharisees. Why? Because they were reformers. They cared about the law of God. They wanted to see their culture embody the commandments of God. They had a prophetic role. They had a prophetic role to name the wrongs of their society, to call them out, and to call people to walk in righteousness. You know, as, as so many of us identify here today with, that we, we feel this role to name wrongdoing, to call people to live in, in righteousness. And they're saying this because they realize Rome is in control of the promised land, and they're like, we are in this situation because of our sin. To continue in sin means we're going to continue in judgment. The way forward, the way to restoration is to turn. So they, they were focused on their community. They had this earnest desire to see their community flourish. And so whether, whether you liked them, you respected their aims. Whether you liked their methods or the, some kind of judgmental nature of what they did, you respected their aims, what they were trying to do. They were people of integrity. The tax collectors were not. The tax collectors were also Jews, but they were Jews who had been conscripted by the Roman government to extort taxes from their own people and often to the tax collector's gain, to their own personal gain. They could be unjust, they could be cruel, they could be asking for more than Rome's share so that they could pocket from it. You wouldn't be proud if your son was a tax collector. You wouldn't want to tell them, other people, what he did for a living that he steals, that he cheats, that he profits from the suffering of others. They were part of the problem that the Pharisees were trying to solve. So these two guys walk into the temple. One you'd expect to be there because praying and leading in prayers is what the Pharisees did, and one you do not expect to be there. You're shocked. You do a double take when you see the tax collector walk in. You almost want to spit on the ground that he is coming into the temple of God. What is he doing here? What business does he have in our temple, this traitor, this betrayer of his own flesh and blood? That would come into your mind about the tax collector. So look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. So far, so good, beginning with thanksgiving. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And how does that prayer sound now? It sounded judgy before, but thinking about this context, he's making distinctions where distinctions exist. It would be wrong for him to say, oh, we're all sinners. It doesn't really matter what anyone's particular sin is. You know, we're all kind of in this, the same position. It would be wrong to simply flatten out all of that. No, some actions really are especially wrong. They cause greater harm to society. 
And in some ways, he's simply doing what we see the psalmist doing, saying, there's a way of righteousness, Lord, that I am walking in. Would you vindicate me? And there's a way of evil that others are walking in. Would you put a stop to them? He's calling out these distinctions. It's not necessarily judgmental what he's doing. In some cases, it would be an injustice not to make those distinctions. Look what he says in verse 12, talking about the the nature of his spiritual life. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. There's a connection between the way of life he's not living and the disciplines he's choosing to take up. So whereas the adulterer is a slave to his passions, this Pharisee is disciplining his own body with fasting, more fasting than the law requires, fasting week in and week out, twice a week. Where the unjust extortioners and the tax collectors are greedily stealing from others, profiting off of the pain of others, this Pharisee is generous towards God. So what's the problem? What's the problem with his prayer? He's one to be respected. He takes the commands of God seriously. He takes the health of his community seriously. What is the problem? Listen to what St. Augustine said about this passage. The Pharisee's fault was not that he gave God thanks. The Pharisee's fault was not that he gave God thanks, but that he asked for nothing more. His fault was not that he gave God thanks, but that he asked for nothing more. He came into God's house full and abounding with no need to be filled up, no need to say, Father, forgive me. And so, Augustine said, he fights against grace. Grace and mercy is on offer to him, and he thinks, I don't need it. He compares himself to this other guy and says, I'm doing a whole lot better than him, and he's not wrong about that. But he doesn't compare himself to God. He doesn't recognize his utter need before God. Because if he did, he would be right next to the tax collector praying the same prayer. God, forgive me. I am a sinner. The Pharisee shows up to God's house full and satisfied, and he leaves full and satisfied with himself. That's it. The problem of pride is not simply that we would place ourselves over others, but it it is that we would not leave any room for grace, that we would place ourselves above the need for God's mercy. Notice what's different about the tax collector. Verse 13, this man comes in so weighed down by shame so weighed down by his sins that he can't take the posture of prayer that would have been normal, praying eyes open, looking up to the heavens. He can't bear to look at God. Have you ever felt that way? He can't bear to look at God. He's beating his breast continuously. His prayer is not composed. It's not eloquent. He doesn't begin with praise or thanksgiving. All he can muster is a plea. God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, a sinner, an extortioner, a robber, a traitor, one who oppresses the poor, who oppresses his own family. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, 
This man, the extortioner, the robber, the unjust, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, and not the other. Pride leaves no room for grace. But when we come to God humble and hungry, then we will be satisfied. When you come to God in prayer, when you come to God, to his house like we come this morning, when you come hungry, you will be satisfied. That is a promise. That is a promise that rules over your whole life. You will be satisfied if you empty yourself. But if you come with no need, then what can you be given? Will not, the God will not force his grace upon you. If you come to him with no need, no hunger, what can he give you? This parable is about the danger, not simply of judging others, but of self-satisfied religion. Self-satisfied religion, this species of pride, feeling yourself ab above the need for God's mercy. But it's also about the promise of humility that if you are humble, if you are hungry, you will be satisfied. I think this is so applicable to suburban life. This is so applicable to suburban life where we have such affluence. And even if you're not affluent, we have access to so many resources. We have so much information. It is so easy to feel satisfied on your own without God. You can go to church. You don't have to go to church. But you don't need your needs to be met there because you have them met in other ways. Your security, it's in your 401k. It's in your portfolio that you've been diligent in adding to regularly throughout your life. Your hopes, they're in your career. They're in your career where you've worked hard. They're in your kids where you've made the right choices about their schools and their extracurriculars so that your hopes can be in them. Your, your happiness, it's, it's in the vacations that you take. It's in your self-care. It's in the glass of wine that you enjoy at night. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But like the Pharisee, we can become self-satisfied with no room left for God. It's easy to come into God's house saying, thank you, I'm, I'm doing just fine. I enjoy the music. I enjoy the music here. Appreciate your offers to help. I won't be needing it this week. And if you do that, your spiritual life will rot. Much of the spiritual life is about cultivating hunger for God. You can't stir it up in your own power. You can't force it or fake it, make it happen. But much of the spiritual life is about cultivating, nurturing, making room for hunger for God and the things that he alone can provide. So how do we do that? As in this passage, one way is through regular repentance. When you sin and you make excuses for it, or you dig your heels in and say, I'm not going to apologize for that, then it becomes easier and easier to excuse greater and greater sins. But when you, when you take an evil thought, even just a small evil thought, and give it to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, that is not the right way to think about that person. Forgive me. When you give him even just a small thought, you bear witness to the fact that there is a wound in your life that you cannot heal. Your therapist cannot heal as good as they are. Self-improvement cannot heal a wound that can only be healed through the blood of Christ. That's what you bear witness to in repentance. Another way we, we cultivate hunger is through prayer. Prayer that happens on these Sunday mornings, prayer that happens throughout the week. As you experience a beautiful day like this and you turn back to the Lord, Lord, this gift comes from you. It's no accident. The joy that I feel on a beautiful day like this, it's no accident. This is because you are good and I bless your name. The prayers that you pray, blessing for those you love and blessing for those you do not love. The prayers that, that you pray, bringing to him your worries, all of these are ways to cultivate hunger. God, the deep needs of my heart, only you can satisfy. The deep problems of this world, only you can solve. Make me an agent of reconciliation. Make me an agent of peace. Fill me with your life. Repentance, prayer in a final way. And I think this is incredibly important. It's important for all of us. It's important for us as we're in res groups and in relationship with one another, but it's especially important for parents. We cultivate hunger through witness, through testimony, through talking about how God has transformed our lives. I mean, parents, your kids see you. They don't see the bad decisions you were making 20 years ago. They don't see the moment that God turned your life around. They don't see the moments where he set you on a trajectory to live the kind of life that you're living now. And so if you don't tell them, if you don't tell them and testify to what God has done, then they will assume that you're living a good life because you're a good person. They will assume that it's because you made the right decisions and they will go and they will try to take a life path that is no different than the Pharisee, a man who worked really hard and was rewarded for it. But that's the American dream. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's the suburban dream. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not you worked hard and you were rewarded for it. But the gospel is that God took mercy on you, a sinner, and brought good gifts and graces into your life, that God gave you the grace to make good decisions and right decisions. But at the end of the day, your story and the good things in your life are not a story about you, but they're a testimony to his grace. Your kids won't know that unless you tell them, and they will remember it. A friend of mine has walked away from the faith that is incredibly painful to his parents. But one thing he cannot deny is the power of his parents' faith. He cannot deny how their lives were transformed by the church, by the scriptures they lived by. He can't bring himself to believe in that God, but he can't deny what he's seen in them. So I just offer that as an encouragement. In your res group, testify, because people will think you're just living this great, you know, North Wheaton life, unless you, unless you tell them, no, 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 no. It's because of the grace of Jesus 
that my life is what it is. It's because of the grace of Jesus that I know joy despite deep, deep pain and suffering. Cultivate hunger through testimony. I love this church because it is so normal here to be hungry and needy. Amen? It is so normal to come to the table with tears in your eyes. It is so normal to seek prayer on the sides of the sanctuary. It's not like one of those places where you feel really conspicuous. You're like, whoa, what did that guy do? It's not like that. It's just normal for all of us to seek prayer. It's a normal part of how we receive God's grace. It is normal to call your res group and say, I had a bad week. It was a bad week, and I just need prayer. I need to sit in the middle of this small group and have you lay hands on me and pray for me. That is normal. Praise God. Pride, self-satisfaction, self-reliance, they leave no room for grace. No room for grace. Only in humility can we be satisfied. Only through emptiness can we be filled up. And so may we grow in holiness. May we grow in wisdom and, and discernment and conviction about things that are just and right and true. But may we never outgrow our need for mercy. May we never outgrow our need for mercy and our hunger for what only God can give. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.